0: The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own, or those of our guests, and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for. All stories, events, or tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they're told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to predict the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 72 of Squawk Ident. What day is it? Recorded on the 9th of March, 2021 from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's episode, Captain Roger and I discussed the challenges of ever-changing and demanding flight schedules, the backside of the clock flying, and Captain Roger schools Aviator Tony on VOR Alpha and Localizer Delta approach plates. Isn't it fun to make fun of the airline pilot? Now that our pre-flight is complete... Let's get ready to push off the gate. Start up our virtual podcast engines and get ready for takeoff. Squawk Ident episode 72 is officially underway. Here to help me to get Flight 72 of the Squawk Ident podcast underway is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is an award-winning trophy hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his mobile studio from the third floor of the Courtyard Marriott Hotel, where he is sharing a short layover with us. From somewhere in Palm Beach, Florida, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing?
1: What day is it, Tony? Where am I? What time is it? You know, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me Well, that makes two of us. That's about sums up how I'm doing. How are you? I'm doing
0: pretty good, man. Uh, you've been busy. You know, you've
1: been ridiculously busy.
0: I, I think that, well, since our last show, you've been flying nonstop with a, just minimal days off in between, right?
1: Yeah. And when you're talking about minimal days off in a part 91 operation, there is no minimum days off. Um, it's... Yeah, it's it's been extremely busy for the past—I mean, month. Um, just a few days off here and there, but uh, out and back, flying out, plane, staying behind, airlining back, picking up another airplane. It's it's been a continuous a continuous onslaught. Yeah, well, that's I guess. good, right? Um, you, you know, there are definitely good elements to that, and there are bad elements of. Of that, you know, I I'm starting to forget where I live or what my what my kids look like, and like I say, I definitely have no idea what day it is. Yeah, and uh, thank goodness, you know, I, I wear my watch, and my watch will, will always tell me what day it is because I I genuinely have I have lost track.
0: Yeah, well, you know that that's funny you say that because I can remember from the beginning of this career that the days do run. Together sometimes. And especially because we don't have a for the most part a nine to five job where you know you go in certain days of the week and you,
1: you know, you get up around the same time. You're Monday through Friday. I mean, there's nothing that can distinguish one day from the next. Yeah. Or one week from the next.
0: And that's probably one of the hardest challenges in this aviation profession is that you have to really get good with working a different clock uh than than most people uh having this challenge of the wackle, uh the window of circadian low it's almost like a constant jet lag. I think most pilots and flight attendants alike uh with the schedules uh at least at the airline side of things uh they get used to it really quick uh that you know one day they're waking up at a certain time the next day they're going to bed at that certain time that they were waking up the day before and it really does have a toll on the human body and and getting kind of acclimated to that schedule is one of the hardest challenges i think once you're a professional pilot on the line and regardless if you're flying uh, for a private owner or a charter or cargo or or what it is uh, you're always going to have these challenges because the you know flying on a schedule or on demand you're going to be flying in multiple time zones around the country maybe even around the world and that is a tough thing to get used to
1: and like you said it definitely does take its toll you know i think for both of us we're somewhat fortunate in the fact that we generally well actually m- me more than you but fly on the, f- the quote-unquote front side of the clock um but that back side of the flying or back side of the clock flying um you know for our cargo friends out there who a lot of us aspire to, specifically at the uh, the two big cargo carriers. But there are some some pretty sobering statistics on on how that does affect you over the course of a lifetime of of flying on the backside of the clock. Um, you know, we say we get used to it. I would say that I've gotten used to it, but you know, our biology might tell a different story. You know, towards the end of a career, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah I can remember in training uh, when I was. Going through flight training and and sitting there with a handful or dozens of my peers around the same level in terms of flying that I had. And we would always have these discussions about what we wanted to do, what we aspired to, what kind of op- operation that we aspired to fly. And a lot of people said, oh man, cargo all the way. And a lot of the arguments were usually surrounded around, well, when you retire, you're going to have a a life expectancy of like five years (laughs) post-retirement. That's it. That's all, you know, because you're constantly flying in the dark on the backside of the clock and the the human body is just not meant for that. Versus a pilot that, say, has some seniority and and gets to fly a more nine to five front side of the clock, daytime, weekends off schedule, uh, that they'll have a much longer Lifespan, and as you mentioned, statistically, those were always numbers that were being thrown at us. And you know, it's—I'd like to see some more uh, research on that because it kind of swayed my decision when I was just a aspiring pilot in my training phase of my career. Um, did that affect you, Roger, in terms of making a decision?
1: You know, I don't think it really affected me that much. However, you know, it's also a little my career path, as we've talked about many times before, has been a little bit different. Mine has been a lot more jagged than yours, and so I'm I'm kind of in a in a lot of ways always been looking to okay, how can I make this better? Because I've jumped around a lot more, and you know, you you know the FedEx or the UPS of the world. You know that looks really good to somebody who's been furloughed, or you know, that's that's forty or fifty years in the future. Like, why do why worry about that now? Yeah. Um, And so I think that it kind of just depends on on your career path. Also, I did you know I I did know a guy. Actually, I've known several guys, but but one of them specifically from FedEx did quote me about that same number. He he flat out said, you know, the average amount of time that that we pay out. Retirement benefits is seven years. And there's only one reason that that, that stops, yeah. unfortunately, because time does catch up, Yeah, you know, even when you're flying around at the speeds that we do.
0: Yeah. And I think I think there is truth to the fact that when you're flying the backside of the clock, it does have effect on the biology of, of a pilot. Um, but at the same time, I also truly believe that, As we age, it gets harder and harder to keep moving. And when you stop moving, you die. (laughs) And that has been my philosophy for the longest time. Um, I've seen my grandparents go through uh, a decline in their lives where as they got older, they found their mobility to be more of a struggle. And as that became more of a struggle, as did uh, their health. Um, everything else. So I, I, I truly believe that, you know, if you keep moving, you'll be okay, uh, to the, to the most part or for the most part, I should say. Um, and maybe that's why I never sit still.
1: Well, and that's part of, <laughs> well, that's another discussion like, altogether, but, uh, for the normal people of us out there. You know that, <laughs> and what you were just talking about is definitely something that I think that aviators across the entire spectrum, you know, need to be aware of. That we sit for long periods of a time. Yeah. We sit. Our job consists of sitting and and really not even, not moving, not really getting up. Um, you know, for people who are flying long haul stuff, you might sit for five to fifteen hours straight. And the diet that we also. You know, I, we've touched on that on this show before also, but, but you, you couple a sedentary lifestyle forced on you by a job with the, the much fewer options from a from a dietary standpoint, which are not always the most healthy just because of where we are able to get food. Right. And, you know, you, you've got a little bit of an uphill battle. Um, In order to keep yourself healthy, that's for sure. What did we call
0: a pilot food when we were in the the flight center? Uh, It was uh, Ritz crackers and uh, cheese, cheese crackers. It's like, well, that's pilot food. (laughs) Anything out of the vending machine.
1: Yep. Anything out of a vending machine that's then packaged and chock full of stuff.
0: Preservatives and nitrites and all that, all the good stuff that really sticks to your gut it mummifies <laughs> your body <laughs> it
1: preserves it really well that's right well you it know it reminds that, me of that hamburger remember that it was a few months ago that person found that maybe six months ago they've some person found a mcdonald's hamburger or something that they, they had somehow they had lost it for like 12 years and it was still like you could recognize it apparently yeah like how many preservatives were in this or yeah. in this stuff i can remember uh, a
0: friend's uh, Kid was doing a science experiment for school, and they had to do that. They had to take by two uh mcdonald's uh hamburgers or cheeseburgers and pull them apart and put them on a plate and One was kept in the refrigerator, and one was not and they had to do their little research on it and There was really no change between the two after weeks <laughs>
1: it's that's like what a, we eat' it's like a twinkie
0: a <laughs> twinkie is like. Good through a nuclear holocaust, man. Yep. <laughs> yep. And and that's really some advice that if I could give a young aviator that's out there, you know, just starting to get into the industry, take care of yourself. This is a very sedentary job. I forget. What is it? After the age of 30 or 40, we lose like 2% of muscle a year or something crazy like that. Um, so get in that gym when you're on that layover, uh, go for a run, go for a walk even. Uh, it's very important and make good choices with you, the food that you eat. It'll increase your mental acuity. It'll increase your energy rate. You won't have to drink five or six cups of coffee uh, just, to, just to get past the day uh, or through the day. So it's very important to, to have a good, healthy diet. And it's really hard to do
1: sometimes with our schedules. You know, that kind of reminds me, I have a question for you that I was thinking about the other day that kind of goes along with the health aspect. Um, instead of, instead of eating, I, I, we'll talk about drinking specifically water, not the drinking that every other pilot out there was thinking I was going to talk about here. Did you find like, it's not so much of an issue with you now because you have a lab in the front of the airplane. But how much do you think that we dehydrated ourselves when we didn't want to take the walk of shame to the back of the Embryer 145 <laughs> as, as regional pilots? So little Because con- I know I did. Yeah,
0: you you actually would hold out and not drink so much?
1: I, absolutely, because I didn't want to have to go and, and walk past 50 people to get to the lab in the back of the airplane. And, you know, I didn't think about it so much at the time. But, I, you know, lately, I, I was like, you know, I tell myself, Roger, you gotta drink more water, which I think is good. But even now I still find myself which I do a good job at at home. But you know, on the other twenty-five days of the month. (laughs) I you know, I I think I'm pretty sure that I dehydrate myself on purpose as to (laughs) avoid having to walk to the back of the airplane because that's the only place where we have a lab on our, you know, on our on our jet. You at least have one in the front, but You know, Roger, the only thing I'm
0: going to say to you is, shame on you. What would Kelly say right now? Kelly, (laughs) and and I hope you're listening, she would say, Roger, you have to drink more water. Uh, Kelly, There are 50 people on the way between me and the lab, though. You know, I've never been ashamed of... The walk of shame. I know that you know some of our listeners might go, "What the heck are they talking about?" <laughs> so when you when you get your first job at a regional airline or or at an an operation where uh, you're now flying on a schedule and you have passengers and you know it's all exciting. Well, the first one of the first things that you'll learn out on the line is you want to try to avoid especially on a regional jet where the only lab is usually in the back of the cabin. You want to try to avoid having to drink too much water right before a flight and then mid midway through the flight have to say, well, oh man, I got to go. I can't hold it any longer. And then they have to do the little swap with the flight attendant and the, and the pilot and the pilot has to walk to the back of the plane and pass every single passenger. And on an RJ, it's typically around 50 people that are now looking at you going, the pilot's out of the cockpit. Why is the why is the pilot out of the cockpit? And then, of course, you'll hear at least two or three times, "Uh, the cockpit's the other way." <laughs> you know, and get you know, all the cliche <laughs> jokes. Everybody's a freaking comedian, right? Um, you know. And, so, I've never uh, been ashamed of having to do that. Um, I actually enjoyed it. Uh, Because then I could could see, because when else are you going to see your passengers' faces? Because you're busy doing your pre-flight checks when they're boarding, and you're busy doing your post-flight checklists and and getting your kit bag together when they're deplaning. So when are you really looking at the passengers? You're not. And so I wouldn't mind. Now, I had a kind of general rule. Well, I would not have iced tea or a big thing of like lemonade right before a flight or within an hour of a flight, because iced tea and lemonade do it to me every time. It's like, I'll have to go. <laughs> I, there's no, there's no holding it. I have to go, uh, coffee. Not so much, uh, because I, you know, so it's less liquid. Um, but for me, I have like a two hour bladder. So even now, um, I drink a full, uh, what is it? 1.5 liter Bottle that they give you at the beginning of each flight. I'll that drink. You guys get yeah. They'll usually a flight attendant will give you a trash bag and and a, two bottles of water, one for each pilot. Um, I will go through a bottle of water in a shift, so you know five six
1: hours of, of flying in a particular day. Now, has that drinking habits changed now that you have a lab in the front of the airplane, or has nope. it has it actually okay? So that was yep you know, Because no even though it's is. in
0: the front, it's still a big ordeal because now you have. You know, usually you have the first class flight attendant, uh, the purser, the number one, doesn't necessarily mean they're the more senior flight attendant. It just means they're the one uh, servicing the first class uh, cabin and galley. And then you have three other flight attendants that are working in the back. At least that's the way it is in the configuration on a 320 and a 321. 319, there's only two in the back and one in the front. And I speak of this only because I'm familiar with it. So, It's a big ordeal because when a pilot has to come out of the cockpit, anyone who's traveled in the U.S. in the last 10 years knows that there is an exchange where, you know, there's a cart that comes out that blocks the aisle uh, for security reasons. And then if a pilot leaves their station, then it has to be replaced with a flight attendant in the cockpit while the uh, other pilot goes to the bathroom. Okay, so it's still a big deal. Now, you can't leave the first class galley unattended so they have to call the back have one of the flight attendants come up to the front put the cart in place figure out who's going to go into the flight deck and who's going to stay behind to monitor the situation then the pilots have to go out and you know they do their thing they come back they go through their procedure um it's still a big deal even oh, though it th- is a
1: dance, it's a sure. dance.
0: Right. And, and we try to coordinate it so that both pilots go at the same time or, you know, in the same um, procedural time frame. that way you're not going, well, I need to go. And then, okay. And then the captains, uh, are you going to go? No, I'm not going to go. And then t- 30 minutes later, well, now I got to go. So <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Um, I try to make it, if it's a two hour flight or more um, I'll, I'll usually go at least one time. Uh, if it's like a six-hour flight, which I've been on those, uh, then I'll m- twice minimum. Uh, so, like I said, about a two-hour bladder, and it, the only reason for that is that I am, I'm pretty good about drinking properly, like, hydrating. Yeah, water. Now, I I, I was concerned uh, about a year ago because I thought that maybe something might have been wrong because I'm I go almost every two hours, and a lot of the other pilots that I've flown with they can hold it for four or five or six hour flight and not go. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Am I, am, am do I have a problem? <laughs> Should I go get checked out? A lot of these pilots it's because the rest of us are dehydrating ourselves. Exactly. Well, kidney stones are, are, you know, and urinary stones are, are very painful. <laughs> Let me tell you, they're <laughs> very painful. I have not personally gone through that because I always stay well hydrated, but you know, I was telling my doctor and my doctor goes, well, how much water do you drink in a day? And I kind of thought about it. And I said, well, I get my orange juice in the morning and my coffee. And I went through the whole thing. He goes, son, you drink about six times more than the average person your age. He goes, that's great. He goes, maybe cut back on the coffee and, and, but keep up with the water. He goes, but if, if people that don't urinate as often as you, it's because they're not drinking enough water. They're not drinking enough fluids. So it's okay. I, I, I don't
1: mind the walk of shame, Roger, <laughs> I I was just wondering, you know, apparently maybe it was, you know, just me trying to, uh, you know, sacrificing my health for walking past those poor 50 people with the seatbelt side on wondering why they cannot get up. But why that why their
0: pilot is. Yeah. Well, if you're thinking about, you know, doing the dance in your seat on a on final and now they'll say, go into holding in 30 minutes. And you're like, what the? And that's not a good time to uh,
1: go have, use the uh, <laughs> I, I The worst time was, I remember flying into Denver International. It was terrible. <laughs> and all I can remember is, thank goodness, we were coming from the east. Thank goodness we landed on runway eight. Oh, or sorry. No, two, six. Sorry, runway two, was it two, six? Two, six, yeah. Coming from the east and we got r- runway two, six. And we landed straight in. It was t- <laughs> It was terrible. I still remember it. where we were. Anyway, welcome to the Squawk Eye Dent podcast, ladies and gentlemen. You're about Captain Tony and his guests talking about their their urinary habits.
0: You know, everyone has a story to tell in this regard. And you just reminded me, when I was flying uh, at Pan Am Flight Academy, getting my training underway, after my instrument rating, I had to build time. To have enough time under my belt for commercial. So what they did was the program was a a part 141 program. They would have pilots either very early in the morning or kind of late at night doing out and back from the Phoenix area to some point in California and back to build time. And they had uh, the pilots with a safety pilot under the hood. So one pilot would be flying under the hood So, that they could log uh, instrument training or instrument uh, flight. And the uh, safety pilot would be there and logging PIC, multi engine. So, pretty cool way to build time and perfectly legal way to do it for the school. Well, I can remember one day we were going to Camarillo, California, from Deer Valley to Camarillo, California. It's a relatively long flight. And I didn't really think much of it, but I had a Gatorade with me and I was drinking Gatorade and a PA what 42 or something like that PA 40 one of those a seminal and here I am and somewhere around the border I just I had to go but I wanted I I didn't want to have to divert we were under you know instrument flight following and <laughs> instrument flight rules I wanted to be able to, uh, to, to log the time and not have to call ATC and say yeah we're
1: going to change our flight plan <laughs> so yeah. now the border everybody is at best halfway between phoenix uh-huh. and camarillo at best at best and to carry
0: carry on with the story and so by the time <laughs> we got to the the, the airspace we you know we call the control tower my co-pilot is cracking up laughing he's he's in hysterics laughing at me and he's like just go in the bottle man just go in the bottle <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can I can hold it. I can hold it. I was stubborn, you know. So we came in. We I must have landed well above the approach speed. <laughs> we used up the run. I told him, we're gonna taxi. We need immediate, we need immediate to the FBO. <laughs> and so shut down the engine. I'm like, you're on the checklist. I opened the door and I'm running across the ramp. And I notice a bunch of people on this beautiful outdoor patio restaurant, and they're just see this pilot just running into the <laughs> FBO. <laughs> oh my god one of those one of those moments that uh, should belong in a film <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you made it I made it and I didn't have an accident or that's the story that you're sticking to
0: uh, no it's true I, you know but that's what I learned early on it's not worth it it's not worth it. my <laughs> kidneys were hurting my back was hurting I mean I was in pain <laughs> it was not good <laughs> so Ugh. let's talk about the little John no <laughs> <laughs> well, these are stories from the flight line
1: ladies and gentlemen stories from the flight line what it's like to be a pilot you know you have to cover the, the pros and the cons yeah. yeah yeah you really do
0: I mean and if there's if that gets one pilot out there that story to you know Make sure they hydrate, but also, you know, if you need a break, take a break. Take the walk of shame. Don't be ashamed of that. I mean, what other opportunity are you going to get a chance to walk past the passengers and hear these corny one-liners?
1: Shouldn't you be in the front? You know, um, it, Hey, it's all good. And, and even in a smaller airplane, I, it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe a month or two ago where there was a smaller plane that called up on, it must have been a center frequency for a diversion. And the air traffic control will always ask you, you know, what's the reason for the diversion? And it, biological needs, yeah. And that that was that was just a probably two months ago, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're human. <laughs> yeah. Now, not to say that you should drink a freaking extra large sweet iced tea <laughs> right yeah. before you get on a flight deck, you know. But you know, plan accordingly. Definitely hydrate. Well, you know, this week I returned to the flight line after three and a half weeks off, you know, talk about getting it done. We, you know, we kind of mentioned this in the last show as well, that I was having time off and, you know, we got to do some, some remodel work at your place. And, and I've been going steady, uh, remodeled, uh, quite a bit here at the house. And my latest, uh, project was to refinish a desk. So here we were. We went out and bought this uh, antique desk and and we sanded it down and restained it and varnished it and you know it came out really nice, but there's another three-day project on top of getting the bathroom done, which up until about uh an hour and thirty minutes ago, I was still working on it. <laughs> but now it's it's finally mostly complete with a couple of little odds and ends that need to be completed. But but yeah, so getting a lot done here at the same time. I did have a trip last week, and I was really looking forward to it. It was a four-day trip with a Phoenix layover and a LaHui, Hawaii layover. And I hadn't been to Hawaii in quite some time, so I thought, hey, talk about great way to come back. Well, the day before the trip, the LaHui layover canceled. They're still not out of the whole quarantine thing, especially in Hawaii. And so because the demand is low... The they elected to cancel the flight over here at Legacy Airlines. Well, what that ended up doing is it put me in what's called recovery obligation or RO. So I, I received a phone call, it was actually on my last day of vacation and it was from cruise scheduling. Well, any wise pilot will tell you if you're on vacation, don't answer your phone, let it go to voicemail. And I figured it was something to this effect that they were telling me about a, a schedule change because I'm not on reserve. So there's, there's no reason really to, to call me. Uh, and sure enough, when I listened to the message, they had told me that the Lihue, uh portion of the sequence had canceled, it I was under recovery obligation. So what I ended up doing was a three-legger on Thursday, the fourth, it was an LA to Cabo San Lucas return leg, and then one leg to Phoenix. And it was a, a relatively long day. My departure time was around 11 in the morning. I got to fly a brand new 321neo. And so talk about coming back right into a new aircraft. When I did the walk around, I noticed that there was not a lick of like, dirty anything. Even the wheels, uh, the, 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 the wheel center covers... No brake dust on it. I thought, man, this thing must be new. So when I got back onto the flight deck, I told the captain, man, this has to be a very, very low time aircraft. I bet you there's less than 100 hours. And he goes, oh, I wonder how you can check. I said, well, I, I actually know. So I went into our app that Legacy Airlines has and I looked up 50 hours total time on the airframe. And we got to fly it. And let me tell you, it was really nice to have that new airplane smell. And it also put a little bit of pressure on me too, because I mean, you're flying a brand new airplane, every little thing (laughs) it's like, okay, if anything goes wrong, it's a brand new airplane. You know, not that that's a major deal, but it was nice to fly down there and back in that. Then we did an aircraft swap, ended up in Phoenix, short layover Stayed at uh, one of the hotels by the airport. Next day, returned back to L.A. And now normally I would have returned to L.A., had an aircraft swap, had to go and get some paperwork for my flight planning to go into Hawaii, but it got canceled. They didn't reassign me, so I got to go home. And I was still under obligation the next day, which was Sunday. But again, they didn't call me. They didn't have anything for me. And I really don't think they could with the time off that I had. So I got an extra couple of days off at home with pay, which is nice. And, and that's one of the benefits of flying the line for a legacy carrier. When you get, when you guys cancel flights and uh, have changes to the owner's schedule, is there any kind of protection or how is it that your pay works when you fly private?
1: Well, it kind of just depends on, on the structure of, of your operation. Typically, if you typically you're on salary and you're kind of, this is your salary and you're beholden to whatever the schedule might be. Just because you cancel doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything in terms of pay. If you get a last minute pop-up trip that doesn't affect your pay either you're kind of just, that is the nature of, that's the nature of the beast. Now it's, yeah. so that can work to your advantage or to not, you know, if it's a busy month and obviously, you know, your daily or hourly pay is much less, but then there's also months where you might not fly as much, in which case your daily or your, um, your hourly rate would be a whole lot more. Yeah. There's also others, other structures, in which case you might be a contract pilot, in which case, you generally charge on a, daily, on a daily basis or a daily rate. And you're going to only get paid if you actually show up and work. Now, that can also work to your benefit or to um, not, you know, to your detriment. Because if you're not flying, then you get no paycheck. If you're flying a lot, then, that, then that's a whole lot better. And depending on how high up you are, cancellations will work a, a different way sometimes you might you know if you're on contract there's usually some kind of contract between you know who's hiring you and yourself and depending on what the time frame of that cancellation is some people are able to charge for that mm-hmm. um, but that's a that's kind of a an agreement um, between the contract pilot and and the owner or whoever's hiring hiring those services out so it just depends um, but generally cancellations are or that we don't have pay protection or anything like that around here. We don't have unions. Um, most of the time, it's a salary basis, and you're just yeah.
0: Well, I know, uh, know when they tell you to the charter operators like the 135s, they usually have like a two week on, two week off um, availability, where you know it's kind of in their contract. And I, I think NetJets is that way, and some of the other. One thirty-five operators.
1: Yeah, typically they're like a, a week on, or some are eight, eight on, six off. Um, but those guys, again, typically that's a salary basis. Um, and when you are on your eight on or your seven on, it doesn't matter whether you fly every single day or you don't fly at all, which would never be the case in those operators. <laughs> Otherwise, they go out of business, obviously. Um, but whether the flight cancels or not, you're still on call. Or you're going to be out at a hotel or a lot of times those guys are just sitting around at airports also.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, pilots and sit time. Yep. Get used to it.
1: There's a lot of it. Yeah.
0: So Roger, you've been flying quite a bit, um, in this past week. I just did that, uh, quick trip and a couple of days off. I returned back to a pretty heavy schedule starting tomorrow morning. Um, I'm flying with a friend. Uh, of the podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll see if our schedules allow it. Maybe we can record a little bit of something uh, while we're on the road. Uh, hopefully that'll work out. But uh, it's going to be fun to to fly a trip here. I've got one coming up uh, tomorrow morning that goes through uh, looks like Charlotte and Detroit and then uh, laying over in Detroit and then going over to where's MCO Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. So a little Orlando layover and then through Dallas and back to Los Angeles on day three. So that's going to work out. And then I've got one day off and then I got the same trip three more times. Uh, Not that trip, though. Uh, It's a trip that goes through Las Vegas and then Honolulu for a long Honolulu. Now, we were talking at the onset of this episode about flying the backside of the clock. Sometimes when you're in a particular seniority at a company, the best you're gonna do if you're really shooting for a, a layover of a certain type, the best you're gonna do is have some kind of backside of the clock flying in that sequence. That's exactly what I got. So on day three at 1030 p.m I depart Honolulu, red eye, back to Los Angeles and land at seven in the morning. So I'm going to be starting early in the morning on day one and then finishing flying at the end of the day, relatively decent time. And then getting up late, having a PM flight into Honolulu that lands in, you know, somewhere in the evening and then spending the entire day there on day three, leaving at the end of day three to land back at base at the beginning of day four. Those are tough because like what we talked about, you don't really get acclimated to your time because you're flying, you know, you're, you're awake at one point And then a day later, you're supposed to be sleeping at that time. And the day after that, you're supposed to be getting up to get ready to go. So those are tough on the body. And I do that trip three times in the month. So it's going to be a tough one for me.
1: Yeah, because then, I mean, that day that you get back is kind of shot, too, because you're trying to recover. And now you're looking at, you know, two days, the day of and the day after that are just kind of you're you're in la-la land because you're not sure what time you should treat it as. Yeah. And then to, that three times back to back in a month.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, hey, it's like going to be a lot of a lot of naps for this old man. The
1: big legacy airlines pilots. <laughs>
0: And and you said you've been doing a lot of flights into Truckee this past few weeks. What's going on there? Do you does your owner have a uh cool vacation spot there in Tahoe? Uh,
1: pretty much, yep. So the skiing a, is good. There's a couple of houses up there and yep, we're going back and forth to Truckee a fair amount into into the clouds and into the snow and into the mountains. And just a lot of out and backs in and out of Truckee over the last couple months, really. Yeah. Now it's a common destination for us.
0: Yeah. Last on the last show, we were talking about how you're doing circle the land approaches versus straight ins, and weather phenomena that could dictate why you would want to do a circle the land. Um, Sometimes it's better to do a straight in, but people elect to do a circle the land for maybe wind direction or whatnot. Did you deal with any of that? this week as well? Uh, fortunately,
1: I didn't have to deal with any circling per se. Um, you know, we, I did go to Truckee a couple days ago. We shot an approach and landed straight in on the short runway. Again, that was kind of what we talked about. I think on the last episode, electing to not circle um, and landing on the shorter runway instead of circling. Um, Cause I think that's just a better option. Most of the, you know, most of the time. Um, there is an approach that we have uh, into one of our home airports however that is kind of a circling approach however the, the strange thing about that is a lot of people don't actually know that it's a circling approach <laughs> which which always kind of gives me a little bit of kick uh, both from mostly because I I used it for training purposes also and people have it's it's still kind of amazes me how people are going to go shoot an approach and they really have absolutely no idea what the approach even means from the beginning and it can create a lot of problems
0: so which which approach is this that you're talking about
1: Uh, we have a we have an approach into gillespie which is the localizer delta approach
0: Uh aha and what does that mean delta does that mean displaced or what does, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, so I, if we are
1: talking a, a lot of people, uh, this is where I make fun of our, our airline guys. And I, and I know that we have a lot of airline, airline pilots that are out there. Do you know what a localizer Delta approach is? Is that that's the, that's is the that a, name of the approach? Is it like a DME thing? It's, <laughs> it's not a DME thing. So, a lot of people, you know, kind of when we initially do our instrument training and, and we do do circling approaches back when we we're a little bit wiser in that, at least in that particular aspect of instrument flying. But a, like a VOR alpha approach is, is something that, that people have typically heard of. And a VOR alpha approach, we'll, at, we'll ask our own Captain Tony since he's the only participant here with us today. But what is a VOR alpha approach? Uh, I don't know. It's the alpha. It's, it's like saying so the
0: ILS it, Yankee and the ILS Zulu. I, I don't know. There are two of them. They're different.
1: They're different. <laughs> Which one are we doing? I don't know. Any so anytime any time that you have an approach with alpha, it, it, what does it go up to? I think maybe up to Foxtrot. But anytime you have an approach that's labeled then with, with a, a phonetic letter after it is a circling approach. That's oh. what it means from the, from the get go. If I tell you that to a VOR alpha approach or VOR Bravo approach or a localizer Delta approach, it is a circling approach. That's what it like it, before even getting past the name, the title of your approach, it is a circling approach. Even if you go down to the minimums, you're going to see that there's only circling minimums. And the reason is because it's only a circling approach. Uh-huh. And so then, so the next question becomes, why is the approach a circling approach? Captain Tony.
0: Well, circling approach, it means that the localizer is more than 30 degrees offset from the runway center line.
1: And so this is where, to all of our listeners, we can then laugh at our airline pilot <laughs> here and ask him when the last time there was a localizer that was not lined up straight on with the runway. Uh, there, there kind of is a correct answer here, but that's called a or an LDA, a loc- localizer. An direction. LDA, Yeah. Localizer
0: as, as John and Martha King would say, a localizer darn angle approach.
1: (laughs) Correct, because it is not lined up. However, this is a localizer delta approach. The localizer, a localizer is always lined up straight with the runway because it's it's part of an ILS. An ILS is made up of two components: a localizer and a glide glide slope. slope. Okay. well So why in the world if why would we have a localizer? Now I got to go back twenty years
0: to my to my training, and if I'm gonna. Draw from what I r- recall if you're at an airport where they may have a localizer frequency transmitter for one runway, but only that runway. And if there's a second runway that maybe doesn't have a frequency or a transmitter for that runway, then they would label the VOR alpha for the runway without that frequency. So the approach would then manipulate the equipment from one runway to land on another runway. And they would call it as such. Is that anywhere close to what you're
1: looking for here? No, it is. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we give you points for effort and a for effort care. So how about
0: okay. descent gradients? Is that anything to do with that? now we are starting to get somewhere so anything more than 400 nautical miles from the final approach fix to 400 nautical to miles 400
1: feet per nautical mile so that's a four a correct if a a f- anything more than four to de- four degree glide slope because what's going to happen is there's two reasons that we have a circling approach the first of which is what you were just what you started talking about our localizer that was not lined up with the runway okay Okay, but anytime that we have an approach course, a final approach course, this is outside of 30 degrees, outside the the runway orientation, it's considered a circling approach. But that's where 95% of the pilots will stop. They think that, hey, it's a circling approach, and it's because it's not lined up. Well, in this particular scenario, because this is an airport that I go into on an almost daily basis, we have a localizer. It's lined straight up with the runway. But it's a localizer delta approach, it's circling. And the reason for that is because of terrain. The other reason, the second reason that you can have a circling approach is because part of one, one of the things that we need in order to land from an instrument approach per part 91 of the FARS is that we need to use normal maneuvers, leaving the MDA or, or just DA, use normal maneuvers in order to accomplish the landing. But if the terrain, the rising terrain from the direction that we're coming doesn't right. allow you to use a normal descent rate. You have to circle. You're going to have to break, come out and MDA, but you're going to be too high over the top of the airport to actually land straight in. In which case, if you can't land straight in because you're too high, you have to circle for the runway. And that's why this particular airport at Gillespie is a localizer Delta is because it's, I think about a 6.9 degree. Oh wow. Final descent angle. Mm-hmm. Which is well outside of the four four degrees. And that's why it's an actual circling approach. So is that
0: rattlesnake uh hill or whatever? Rattlesnake it's Hill yeah. is
1: is part of is part of it. Um, however, it's also even going out out to the east. Rattlesnake Hill, you actually have to have visual <laughs> that one is you have to have that in sight in order to land because you're really close to it. Yeah. But it's the rising terrain out to the east because of the, the topography and the geography around the area of San Diego and the the rising terrain close to the east, the east side of the city.
0: Okay. So a localizer delta means that it is only a circle-to-land approach mm-hmm. because the MDA is way too high to make a normal approach to landing. Correct.
1: We have a localizer being our ground directional aid, but we can only circle, and that the reason for that is because of the terrain in the MDA and the descent rate. Excellent. You know, I just... I know it's back there somewhere in the
0: in the in the uh, encyclopedia of of knowledge but man it's been a long time since I even thought about that.
1: You see all this stuff that the GA pilots of America have to put up with that you guys don't ever even think about.
0: Yeah, it's very, very true, you know, and my hat's off to to the, the GA pilots, the charter pilots. I mean, we were just talking about this a couple episodes ago. It's like, man, I don't think I could do your job. I mean, you're on the phone constantly You're, you're you're doing everything from getting catering on the aircraft, making sure that the maintenance uh, logbooks have been signed off and the flight plan was filed and the weather checks have been good. And you are do it all. You know, we have what's called SOC for that or MOC you know, maintenance operation control or systems operation control. You know, we have, you know, rooms full of people with, <laughs> you know, teams of computers all there waiting for Doing us to all just your show up for you. <laughs> all we got to do is show up. Well, the paperwork says uh, I need this much fuel to take off. So that's how much fuel I'm going to have to take off. And well, why is that? I don't know. And I don't care. That's what the paperwork says.
1: <laughs> that's what dispatch told me I needed. and. That's, That's good enough for me.
0: And when you're flying at a, especially maybe not so much at a regional airline or a commuter airline, but when you're flying at a major airline, uh, you know, what are you doing? 99% of the time, a full ILS. Daytime, nighttime, IFR, VFR, you're shooting an ILS. Occasionally, you're going into international destinations. You're going to shoot a GPS approach, in which case it's a coupled autopilot GPS approach because the company prefers that you do it that way. If the weather is low, what are you doing? A Cat 3 Autoland. What does that mean? That means the, the one or both or th- all three of the autopilots, depending on your equipment, are coupled to the ILS and the plane is landing all by itself, all the captain and the first officer are doing are monitoring systems, making required callouts. And once the aircraft is on the runway, then it'll apply the brakes automatically. And when it gets to a certain speed, there's a speed callout. I believe 80 knots is the right call. And all of a sudden, autopilot click, click comes off and the captain uh, resumes control of uh, manipulating the aircraft on the ground. And, and that's what we do. Uh, So occasionally some young hotshot GA pilot or private or corporate pilot will come in and go, you airline guys, let's hear what's the definition of this. And we're like, uh, I don't know.
1: (laughs) But it gives the rest of us entertainment value. (laughs) because as you know you you guys you airline guys no legacy air you have made it you are the man you work at legacy airline and so we like to or i speak on probably just my behalf but i like to uh I like to give you a hard time. Yeah, you give, I you've it. been
0: giving me a hard time for 20 years, my friend.
1: <laughs> but I would like to say thank you for indulging me and making fun of you just a little bit and 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 hyping that up a little bit more than I even had to. No, but I appreciate but that.
0: This is what we're here. This is what the Squawk Ident Podcast is all about. Yes, primarily we we discuss about, you know, the journey in today's aviator and when we can get interviews lined up, we definitely love hearing about everyone's unique journey and, and how they became the pilot that they are today. But in that process, we also talk about all of the hurdles that come along the way in this journey. And thank you so much for bringing this up because, you know, I've, I've seen occasionally we give you know, VOR alphas in the book. Uh, we rarely ever have to perform them. Uh, even in training, we, we don't, really do much more than we usually do a, an ILS with the glide slope out of service. So it's a localizer only approach. We do a GPS approach or two, we do an ILS approach or two and a couple single engine approaches, uh precision and non-precision. Occasionally we do a VOR into JFK. At least that's what legacy likes to do. Um, and which has these really cool lead in lights and,
1: and, all the fun the stuff. VOR one, three left. Exactly.
0: Which is yeah. that, has that been decommissioned? I,
1: I don't know. I, don't I just even know. know that the VOR 13 left is something JFK is something that all kinds of training departments have been using for decades.
0: Yep. And and I got to say one of the highlights of being based in New York for the time that I was there, uh when I was at Sandpiper, uh used to love <laughs> shooting that approach. Uh you know, at a home airport. And that in the uh expressway visual in LaGuardia. Oh, that one's that one's a good one. Do you have the tanks in sight? Uh what? The tanks. Do you have tanks? What are they talking about? <laughs> Take a look at the expressway visual uh, runway. What is it in LaGuardia? Two
1: nine? I don't, I don't remember. I remember doing one visual approach into LaGuardia. And yeah, it's like you fly Like I didn't fly into there all that much. And we got, and it was at nighttime. And I'm trying to find all of these. These visual cues to look for. And LaGuardia is not the easiest airport to land at either. No, you're, you're coming in and it's kind of out on the water, which is dark, and you're looking for all these visual cues as you come in. And the runway is not all that long either.
0: No, no, it's the expressway and visual runway 31 into LaGuardia. In terms of the runway, runway 31 is oh, what is it, 7,000 and three feet of uh runway available let's see here
1: maybe it was one of them had you turn like base to final inside of two miles or something that's the one no maybe so that was it and you have to be configured like on downwind because you're you're so tight coming into the coming into this runway. yeah Yeah.
0: And, and i used to love that one i think that one Absolutely is my favorite. Um, so when you're coming in on this chart, it's the nineteen two chart. Uh, if you're if you're following along on Jeppesen's, uh, the are Expressway Visual Runway three one, and you come in over Prospect Park, and you have to visually head over to Dials. Uh, Or you can go usually, even under instrument conditions, you can go to to dials intersection. But you have to have the tanks in sight before they can clear you on this visual approach procedure. Now, when you look on the chart, it just says twin white tanks. And you think, how am I going to see twin white tanks out here? Well, they're huge propane or natural gas tanks. There are two of them. And and they're huge, and you can't miss them. So as soon as you have the tanks in sight, they'll say, "Do you have the tanks in sight?" You say, "Yes, I do." All right, you're clear the expressway visual runway three one contact tower. So here you are. You 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 head over to the tanks. You make a, a little bit of a right turn. You follow the expressway, the Long Island Expressway. You go around City Field. I remember that part. Yep. You don't want to go Before over it. The you got to go around the stadium. And as you're turning from base to final, which is more than a 90 degree turn, by the way, so you should be fully configured. The slowest practical and at an altitude that would be commensurate with a standard uh, three degree glide path to the runway, because at that point you're committed. Uh, if you're overshoot undershoot, you're too high or too low, you're probably going to go around because you're, you're low and you turn that modified base to final and you are right there, you know, you're right there and you're you, on top of the runway. You're, you're, yeah. You're, you know, so you, you, especially if there was a windy day and the winds were coming out of the South. Yeah. You, you really had to <laughs> bank it pretty good, you know, get all lined up. And as soon as you turn final, what's right there? a uh, part of the city dump where the birds are <laughs> seagulls are everywhere. So now you're like, uh, final landing birds. <laughs> it could be a challenge. Uh, but yeah, 7,000 foot runways at LaGuardia, both of them, both intersecting runways. And on one of the runways, you land on an elevated portion of the runway. That's a pier out into the water. And that's always fun. Yeah. Runway. Uh, was it two, one two. So, good times. We'll be right back right after the break. I want to take this time to say congratulations to one of our friends here at the Squawk Ident Podcast, Mr. Kyle jansen congratulations on the new addition to your family well today's a relatively short show for us um rob couldn't make it uh he's actually been delayed uh on his flight out of miami he thought he was going to be able to get home on time for this broadcast today of this episode or this uh recording And he just, he was delayed and he just couldn't make it. He had a mechanical issue with his aircraft. Um, So he sends his regards and I was speaking with him just the other day in reference to what our schedules are going to be like here in the next few weeks. So if we can get some more shows out and he's got some vacation coming up. Well, his vacation is going to be a nice family vacation in Hawaii. And as mentioned earlier, I'm going to be going to Honolulu quite a bit, uh, three more times actually this month. And uh, hopefully we can meet up. Now, there are some restrictions still for flight crews in Hawaii. Part of the process, you have to go online to the Department of Transportation for Hawaii, and you have to register the fact that you're flying in even flight crews. And what happens is they send you an email with a QR code. As soon as you land, there is a National Guard waiting for you at the top of the jet bridge, and they check your temperature and they hand you a questionnaire of everything on there. You have a fever. Have you been exposed? All those things. As long as it's no to everything, then you move forward to the next process where there are agents there with digital laptop or digital tablets. And what they want to do is scan your QR code that you registered with the department of transportation of Hawaii, uh, allowing you uh, to, for them to know where you're going so that if you have to quarantine, they'll know they can check on you and whatnot. Flight crews uh, are exempt from the 14 day or whatever it is quarantine. However, you're still under a restriction a quarantine restrictions. So you're not allowed to leave your hotel unless it's for physical exercise by yourself or to get food to bring back to your hotel and you eat it at your hotel. You can't go on the beach. You can't participate in any you know, water activities. You can't rent a car. There's, there's a lot of things that you just can't do. You are basically have to isolate yourself for your entire stay there. The only way around that, Is as, and I'll have to check to see if I have the most updated information. Is the only way around that is if you take a COVID test, and I don't know if it's 48 hours or 72 hours prior to your trip, and it comes back with results that are negative, then you are exempt as a flight crew member or even a traveler to quarantine in your hotel. You can then participate, go out and and do what you got to do because you've had a negative test. Now, I was thinking about that. And I'm hopefully going to be able to meet up with Rob and his family and get some cup of coffee and say hello in person, which will be nice. Um, But I can't really do that if I'm under quarantine. So I think what I'm going to do is go out, get myself a, a COVID test. And as long as it comes back negative, then when I get to Hawaii, I have a proof that I have a negative test within the time frame that they require. And I am no longer restricted to be quarantined.
1: I will um, caution you on that. This is from uh, another one of my coworkers who actually went to Hawaii as a crew member. Yes. And so this is secondhand information, okay. but I do believe from what he was saying that s- there are only certain testing facilities that are yes. approved by the state of Hawaii. So for you or anybody else that might be traveling to Hawaii, make, to Double check that information because, like I said, that's secondhand information. But from what he had he had told me, well, the state of Hawaii will only allow COVID tests from certain facilities. I do not know what the criteria are. but um,
0: That is true. Um, I remember uh, receiving that information as well that you can't just go to any place to get tested, that it has to be at an approved site. Um, and there is a list. You can go to travel.hawaii.gov to get more information about that. So if you're planning a trip to the islands before you go, make sure, you know, and that again is travel.hawaii.gov.
1: I think a lot of airports now have, um, facilities in close proximity to airports for this reason, for people who are traveling internationally, whether it be to the Caribbean, which also has rules just like the state of Hawaii. Um, and that I did have personal experience with, um, and also with the new directive from what January, I think it was, in, in international destinations, hotels in Mexico, I know, are setting up COVID testing because in order to get back into the States now, you need to have that testing. And so in order to drum up business, you know, businesses are, are figuring out, you know, what can we do to, to get people traveling again?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mexico was like that. If you lay over um, as a traveler in any of the Mexican destinations, before you can get on a plane to come back, you have to be tested, have a negative test. And if you end up coming up positive, then at your expense, you have to stay at one of their designated hotel areas. Um, Yes. As you mentioned, I'm looking at the Hawaii website here, the travel, and it does say that If you're going to get tested, it has to be at Hawaii's Trusted Testing and Travel Partners. And you can find that on their website as well at hawaiicovid19.com slash travel dash partners forward slash. Well, that's going to pretty much wrap up episode 72 of the Squawk Ident podcast. We hope that all of you out there in podcast land are enjoying the value that you're receiving from our little show. We really do enjoy sitting down every week and discussing this amazing journey in aviation. And I, and I really want to say thank you to our co-host, Captain Roger, for sitting down with us to record this episode while he's on a relatively short layover in Palm Beach, Florida. I'm, I know your time is critical and rest and hydration. Is key, so please, <laughs> absolutely, uh, you know, accept my my special thanks to you for for doing this and for doing this every week. You know, we we really do have a wonderful time talking about and discussing all these technical aspects of the job, uh, the funny stories that come along with it, the walks of shame and and whatnot. And I just want to say thank you to you. Well, thank, for,
1: thank for you. I mean, it's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I thank you to to you and our listeners for allowing me to keep this one a little shorter so that I can get some rest before waking up. Yeah, no. Waking up and doing it again tomorrow. Yeah. And be safe out there, Roger. I mean,
0: it's some crazy with stuff. Always. With all the stuff that you have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, we don't even print out paperwork anymore. It's all on a tablet. We push buttons.
1: <laughs> Well, you know, that's one thing that doesn't change no matter what, you know, no matter what kind of operation you're in is that safety does need to come first. Absolutely. Um, and and that doesn't change no matter what kind of airplane you're flying or what kind of operation you're flying it in.
0: yeah Always think of that. Uh, put uh, aviate the safety of aviation first and uh, the rest will come. If you find value in our podcast and would like to help us continue to grow, we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. From the homepage, you can find methods to contribute to our show by becoming a producer with either a one-time or recurring Contribution. You can also leave us audio feedback. You can ask questions. You can discuss show topics, to show topic discussions. Send us emails, all there on the website. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. We encourage you to support us on the YouTube channel with a like, subscribe, and a share. In closing, I'd like to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these Grateful Aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe, drink plenty of water, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. Stay
1: hydrated, my friend. (laughs)